Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 114, JEDP, The Mount Ebaldificio, and C.S. Lewis, Part 7. The universe is a riddle trying to get out, and you are holding your door hard against it. George MacDonald, from his novel Lilith. We ended last week asserting that academia is prone to a specialization process of hyper-rationalized left-hemisphere thinking that blinds them to the broader living context of the world. It is important to note that I am not indicting all academics or all academic disciplines, even in today's culture, though I believe that none are untouched, even in more conservative Christian circles. I believe also that this tendency has been on the increase in the academy for the past century and a half, and that the Hegelian logic that fosters it is, as my graduate advisor once said, almost the only way in which anyone knows how to think anymore. My paraphrase. In my discussions with academics and those who tow the orthodox line of today's intellectual class, it is nearly impossible for them to acknowledge, indeed, perhaps even to see, the myopic and slavish mindset into which they have fallen. So that I conclude with C.S. Lewis, the fact that some people of scientific education cannot by any effort be taught to see the difficulty confirms one's suspicion that we here touch a radical disease in their whole style of thought. From the Funeral of a Great Myth As I have explored my own atheism and the 25-year immersion in the mindset that engendered it, I have come to understand, I think, the major sticking points on which the issue hangs. I would say, along with G.K. Chesterton, that, one, the modern mindset is one of Quote, reaction and revolt, end quote, against traditional and supernatural thinking, and most especially against Christianity. Two, because it is a mindset of reaction and revolt, it has unconsciously abandoned objectivity. Quoting Chesterton again, it is because the critics are not detached that they do not see this detachment. The term unconscious here might better be understood as bad faith in the writings of Jean-Paul Sartre, which was meant to counter the very notion of the unconscious as propounded by Freud. 3. Because what it is a revolt and reaction against is religious transcendence, it is utterly blind to its own religious faith, its own unquestioned fundamental assumptions about the nature of the world. The critics are, Chesterton asserts, essentially iconoclasts, not objective observers. And, quote, an iconoclast is not impartial. And it is stark hypocrisy to pretend that nine-tenths of the higher critics and scientific evolutionists and professors of comparative religion are in the least impartial. Why should they be impartial? What is being impartial when the whole world is at war about whether one thing is a devouring superstition, or a divine hope. I do not pretend to be impartial, in the sense that the final act of faith fixes a man's mind because it satisfies his mind. 
but I do profess to be a great deal more impartial than they are, in the sense that I can tell the story fairly, with some sort of imaginative justice to all sides, and they cannot. From his introduction to the everlasting man. Like Chesterton, I make no pretense to impartiality, which is why I declare here on the Christian Atheist after each episode, I choose Christ's side. My mind is fixed, because my mind is satisfied in the way Chesterton expresses here. That is, I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I know that atheists and Christians believe in their respective views, that my belief is faith, and they simply cannot face that theirs is too. Thus, while not impartial, quoting along with Chesterton, I can tell the story fairly, with some sort of imaginative justice to all sides, and they cannot. To face that, would be to recognize that they stand in the same faith relation to the world as that against which they revolt. What does their faith involve? To begin to unravel this question, we return to Lewis's essay. Let's start with a metaphysical commitment. Quote, I find in these theologians a constant use of the principle that the miraculous does not occur. End quote. This is, of course, the anti-supernatural bias we have constantly pointed to throughout the Christian atheist, and which finds, if not its origin, at least its social progressive jumping-off point in the pathogenic Hegelian mindset in the early 19th century. It is not a coincidence that the higher criticism generally, and the JEDP theory more specifically, came out of post-Hegelian Germany. I have said that the central move of Hegel was the denial of transcendence, or alternatively, the enthronement of immanentism. All that is, is here. As miracles are definitionally outside the scope of scientific verification, whether they are possible or not is an a priori article of faith. Quote, the rejection as unhistorical of all passages which narrate miracles is sensible if we start by knowing that the miraculous can never occur. Now, I do not want to discuss whether the miraculous is possible. I only want to point out that this is a purely philosophical question. Scholars, as scholars, speak on it with no more authority than anyone else. The canon, if miraculous, unhistorical, is one they bring to the study of the texts, not one they have learned from it. On this, the critics speak simply as men, men obviously influenced by, and perhaps insufficiently critical of, the spirit of the age they grew up in. End quote. A second article of faith Lewis expresses in this way. All theology of the liberal type involves the claim that the real behavior and purpose and teaching of Christ came very rapidly to be misunderstood and misrepresented by his followers, and have been recovered or exhumed only by modern scholars. End quote. Academics are, as we have said, a hyper-rational lot, and getting caught up in the spirit of the age they grew up in that is, the worldview through which everything is viewed, 
is a nearly irresistible rational and groupthink temptation. They live more in the rarefied atmosphere of speculative reason than they do in contact with empirical reality. Each generation has a hubris that they are seeing the world aright as they apply their age's paradigm to the data they are viewing. A little bit of humility and deference to the wisdom of our fellow men, along with a dash of dispassionate reasoning, should put such speculative nonsense to bed. Quoting Lewis, The idea that any man or writer should be opaque to those who lived in the same culture, spoke the same language, shared the same habitual imagery and unconscious assumptions, and yet be transparent to those who have none of these advantages, is, in my opinion, preposterous. Like Lewis, I have read some who apply their pet theories, this assumption, to the great philosophical and literary works of the past, and, quote, along with Lewis, I see, I feel it in my bones, I know beyond argument that most of their interpretations are merely impossible, end quote. Is this subjective? Yes, perhaps, but not only subjective, as it may be measured according to the rational criteria Lewis gave in the preceding quotation. And it is not a matter of simply rejecting a rational picture of these works in isolation, but of a careful comparison of two competing explanations of the same data, one of which is deeply nuanced sensitive to a much broader historical context, and time-tested, and another which is, simply speaking, novel and modern, but appealing to one age's limited and rationalized conceits. The third article of faith builds on the other two. It is a faith in the critical method by which the academic scholars arrive at their conclusions a method that overawes the seemingly simplistic approach of previous eras. There is here, too, an article of faith, an evolutionary assumption of progress and the superiority of the new over the old, the later over the earlier. This is what Lewis calls the evolutionary myth. Lewis says, All this sort of criticism attempts to reconstruct the genesis of the texts it studies, what vanished documents each author used, when and where he wrote, with what purposes, under what influences, the whole Zitzimleben of the text. This is done with immense erudition and great ingenuity, and, at first sight, it is very convincing." End quote. The result of this immense erudition and great ingenuity is a highly rationalized, speculative reconstruction of the genesis. One might very properly say the evolutionary development of the text in question that is very convincing. But, Lewis says, what forearms me against all these reconstructions is the fact that I have seen it all from the other end of the stick. I have watched reviewers reconstructing the genesis of my own books, and those of others, in just this way. 
reviewers will dash you off such histories with great confidence. We'll tell you what public events had directed the author's mind to this or that. What other authors had influenced him. What his overall intention was. What sort of audience he principally addressed. Why and when he did everything. End quote. This sort of comprehensive rational explanation of contemporary authors is done by, quote, someone whose mother's tongue is the same as the author's, a contemporary, educated like themselves, living in something like the same mental and spiritual climate, end quote. How successful were the reconstructions in hitting upon the facts of the text's construction? Quote, my impression is that in the whole of my experience, not one of these guesses has, on any one point, been right. That the method shows a record of 100% failure. You would expect that by mere chance they would hit as often as they miss. But it is my impression that they do no such thing. I can't remember a single hit. What I think I can say with certainty is that they are usually wrong. And yet, they would often sound, if you didn't know the truth, extremely convincing. Now this surely ought to give us pause. The reconstruction of the history of a text, when the text is ancient, sounds very convincing. But one is, after all, sailing by dead reckoning. The results cannot be checked by fact. The assured results of modern scholarship as to the way in which an old book was written are assured, we may conclude, only because the men who knew the facts are dead. End quote. The problem, of course, for the biblical critics is compounded by quote, the fact that they are everywhere faced with customs, language, race characteristics, class characteristics, a religious background, habits of composition, and basic assumptions, which no scholarship will ever enable any man now alive to know as surely and intimately and instinctively as the reviewer can know mine. End quote. What makes the reconstructions of the higher critics so intellectually compelling? Why do they remain so convincing? Quote, the biblical critics, whatever reconstructions they devise, can never be crudely proved wrong. St. Mark is dead. When they meet St. Peter, there will be more pressing matters to discuss. End quote. Perhaps, suggests Lewis hopefully, this methodology is a mere intellectual fad and will pass into obscurity, since the, quote, Confident treatment to which the New Testament is subjected is no longer applied to profane texts. Everywhere, except in theology, there has been a vigorous growth of skepticism about skepticism itself. End quote. Before we end this series, we will have to spend some time discussing the skepticism about skepticism itself that Lewis mentions here. But for now, Academia is, after all, as faddish as popular society, and many intellectual fads have come and gone since Lewis's time. His own experience included the higher criticism applied to Shakespeare, 
to Milton, to Homer and the Greeks, to the Arthurian legend, and others, all of which have been almost completely abandoned as both unfruitful and academically wrong-headed. Likewise, the fad of English Hegelianism in philosophy, in which Lewis, and T.S. Eliot too, was himself profoundly ensconced, quote, fell suddenly and completely, end quote, due to objections that, quote, were so frightfully obvious that I felt sure they must be mere misunderstandings. The great men could not have made such very elementary mistakes as those which my objections implied, end quote. In other words, in order to accept the fad, both basic common sense and the awareness of the broader intellectual and empirical reality had to be suppressed. Once such common sense and a more realistic outlook are reasserted, the fad is seen to be what it always was. Of course, we don't want to be foolish and to be understood to be simply arguing against any critical approach to the scriptures. This is not a blanket condemnation of critical methodology, but a targeted one. Quote, you must not, however, paint the picture too black. We think that different elements in this sort of theology have different degrees of strength. The nearer it sticks to mere textual criticism, the more we are disposed to believe in it. It is as we glide away from this into reconstructions of a subtler and more ambitious kind that our faith in the method wavers, and our faith in Christianity is proportionately corroborated. End quote. Like the Mount Ebal critics we have confronted in this series, the attitude manifested by the higher critical approach to the scriptures is a peculiar one, one that practically complicates and obscures rather than simplifies and clarifies the truth of what it studies, darkens rather than illuminates the mystery and marvel we are seeking to understand. We must listen to reality's whispers and cease the attempt to silence them, to force reality into our own hyper-rationalized categories. We might, ourselves, whisper in a friendly way to the higher critics, as suggested above. The universe is a riddle trying to get out, and you are holding your door hard against it. I am a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian. <laughs>